Hi, I'm Cam. And I'm Fiona, and you're listening to the Over the Fence podcast by Farmers for Climate Action. Today, we're talking with Ruth McGowan. Ruth grew up on a farm in northeast Victoria. She later worked as a senior scientist for the Victorian government. And as mayor, she helped lead her community through the 2009 Black Saturday bushfire disaster. Ruth is an expert on getting people elected to politics, working with aspiring candidates at local, state and federal levels. We chatted with Ruth about growing up on the farm and what led her to become passionate about grassroots politics. As always, follow us online or send us an email. Here's our interview with Ruth. So where did you grow up, Ruth? I grew up in a place called Indigo Valley, which is not far from Yakindanda, um, at the foot of Mount Barranduna, over the valley from Mount Barangabong and Tangamalanga and Tulangada. But near Wodonga, for those that don't like the big, difficult to pronounce names. So, yeah. And were you on a farm there? Yeah, I grew up on a farm. It was probably uh, 700 acres and it was a dairy farm in the late 60s, early 70s. So I grew up as a kid on a dairy farm. And then um, my father became an agricultural consultant. He'd, he'd studied ag at uni and we had share farmers. So I think it sort of was a dairy farm until the early 80s when my brother also took over the dairy farm. And then it went into sheep and beef. When were you the kind of kid that was outdoors a lot on the farm? Absolutely. I um, I grew up in quite a large family, so I was the 12th child. Mum had 14 kids, so it was a large family growing up and we'd be out from dawn to dusk, whether that was, uh, you know, out shooting with my brother, shooting rabbits or helping doing the weed control. There was quite a, quite a number of hills and we all had horses and ponies from when I was young and our job would be to ride the hills with a little mattock and to, whenever we saw noxious weeds to dig them out because the hills were quite steep, couldn't get up there in vehicles. And we'd do that and um, just explore the bush because there was the Chilton um, National Park bordered onto the farm. So we'd explore the bush on the ponies and yeah, come home at, when it was dusk and time for a feed, <laughs> get the nose bag on. So 700 acres, that was a pretty big dairy farm for those days, was it? Uh, well, the, yeah, it was, but not all of it was dairy farm because a lot of it was hills. And back in those days, some of it was cleared. You know, part of the job in the early 70s was clearing the land. And then later on, um, so I was very lucky growing up that mum and dad put a strong emphasis on education. So all of us kids... Um, went to boarding school to get you know good good education, and then we went on to university. So we all got degrees. Um, and when we moved off the farm and we were off at uni, um, rather than clearing the land, which is what Dad had been doing in the early days, Dad moved to planting a lot more trees, and the farm became a bit of a showcase in the area for uh, agroforestry and growing trees. And Dad won. I think it was the Hanslow's Cup in the 80s, which was a Landcare Award for sustainability. So his thinking changed from chopping down trees to planting, planting trees. And when we were growing up and that thinking switch, we also planted a lot of trees. And also, you know, I was driving the tractor at 10 with the uh, Berkeley on the back 
and watering the trees through the summer to nurture them. Do you know what the catalyst was for making that change? Why that thinking shifted? Not really sure. I think um, the salinity and those issues where the recharge areas of the hills became well known and the science behind that. Um, when Dad studied agriculture was probably in the 1940s. He went to Melbourne Uni, he did ag science there. And it was subdue the land and spray everything that moves. And even if it doesn't, just spray it and chop it down. And then I think as Dad moved into his consulting practice, he also worked overseas. A lot, he had his own um, consulting business, McGowan International. And he worked in the Middle East and he worked in Africa. And he could see some of the uh, risks of deforestation and what was happening. And I think that helped change his thinking. And of course, Landcare, one of the earliest Landcare groups was in Wurridgee, which was just over the hill from Indigo Valley. So um, I guess everyone started to think, well, what can we do to um, reduce the impact of salinity, which, you know, ironically, it's something you don't hear a lot about anymore. It's climate change, but salinity was the big thing. That was the start of the movement to uh, looking after the land more effectively and looking after the environment. And how old were, were you when you went off to boarding school? 16. And where, where, where did you go? I went to school. It's um, shut down now. It was called PCW. Um, I went there and it was in, uh, in Windsor. And then I went on to Melbourne University and I went to college there. And when I did agriculture, I was actually second year agriculture. We worked, the university had a farm just out of Melbourne, which they'd had since the 60s and the 70s. And it was called Mount Derriman and it was a research station. And our year in 1984 was the last year to go to Mount Derriman. Um, and previously before that, like anyone who's done the agricultural science at Melbourne Uni, they went to um, Dukey or they went to wherever it was part of the course. You had a year away. But now, of course, Mount Derrimet is just a sub suburban area. And um, we used to do practical experiments with sheep and pigs and uh, lots of different um, agricultural pr practical work there. But now, yeah, it's just suburb suburbia now. And I think... Um, ag students now go and spend time at Dookie. What attracted you to ag science? Uh, uh, look, it's a fantastic degree. Back then, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I know I wanted to work outside. And I love science. I've studied science at school. So it was a combination you could do a lot of subjects without having to specialise. So you could do, I studied rural sociology, plant taxonomy, um, animal husbandry, soil science, plant production. So there was economics, there was a whole lot of subjects I could study for four years and have a really broad degree, even commun agricultural communication. So by the time I came out the other end, I had a little bit more of an idea what I wanted to do. And that was yeah, to work with work with farmers and work with people on the land. So tell us what you did do when you got to the other end and started your working life. I actually, my first job was with the Australian Wheat Board um, and I spent a year in the quality control area there managing, um, monitoring wheat for residues. So it met market export requirements and 
part of that was working in the lab, getting some experience there. The wheat board had huge laboratory down on South Bank, which is all um, was all knocked down for the casino, but that used to be a big lab there. And then I'd also travel around Australia, going to wheat silos and taking samples and meeting with grain growers and keeping an eye on the harvest and how that was progressing, hoping and, and with all the uh, farmers hoping that the, you know, the rains would come at the right time to kick off the crops and then not come towards the end. So you'd, you'd get, um, you know, the wheat impacted and have to sell it all for uh, feed grain. So I got to travel around Australia, go to all those tiny little silos out in, in you know, out in the middle of nowhere and meet some of the grain growers out there. And it was, um, yeah, it was really interesting. Did you notice at any point that the climate was changing? Not then, not then, but um, I, I want, the country was calling me to come back and I, I'd also met a fella at uni um, who was from the Latrobe Valley. He actually grew up on a dairy farmer as well. So Paul's an engineer and we met at uni and we both had a calling that we wanted to, you know, be together for the rest of our lives, but also move back to the country. So I applied for a job with the Department of Agriculture and they had a graduate program going and I ended up um, being offered a job in Warrigal, which I'd never even, I think I'd driven through once in my life, but I came down to Gippsland and that's basically where I've been for the last 31 years and made Gippsland, West Gippsland my home. And I have seen a marked change in climate just over those three decades in West Gippsland, which um, is a high rainfall area where we live in a little hamlet called Jindavik, just on 10 acres. And we're surrounded by dairy farms, which we both love having grown up on dairy farms and not having to get up early and milk the cows. But um, we're surrounded by dairy farms. And when we first came here, it was very wet. The kids just, so we've got three kids, they're adults now, but they spent all winter in gumboots. So it was gumboots outside, slippers inside. And for the last couple of um, seasons, it's, we just haven't, we used to get like 12, 1200 to 1500 mils of rain some years. And we haven't had that. So that said, this year is looking quite wet and we have been in the gumboots for the last three months. So, but the ground used to squelch and it had bubbles that you, the kids would jump on where the springs came up like little mini trampolines. Um, and then we stopped having that. We've noticed some of the species change um, that come down from the mountains, whether that's the, the currawongs, more currawongs. We've noticed alpine copperhead snakes around the, the farm that are normally up in the high plains. So they're moving. So we've noticed some of those changes. And of course, the dries that uh, was that preceded Black Saturday bushfires, which impacted this area significantly. And that was an incredibly dry year um, leading into that summer. So that summer, that January was very hot. And then February the 7th, Black Saturday hit around here and many parts of Victoria. Black Saturday and you were mayor at the time. You have to talk a little bit about that as well. Yep. So I, uh, I spent a number of years working in agriculture and my first job was working as a chemical education officer, which was a issue close to my heart. I'd always felt that farmers needed to be more careful using chemicals. And I got a job advocating chemical safety with 
farmers and also working with farming women and with school kids. So it was developing resources for primary school kids in regional areas to understand alternatives to, uh, to ag chemicals and also wearing safety gear, which back in the 80s was quite a radical suggestion for many farmers that you should put on glass, uh, gloves and masks and um, be careful using chemicals. It was almost seen as an insulting suggestion. And of course that's all changed. But back then we had, uh, I ran a statewide chemical awareness campaign. And then I moved into monitoring uh, produce, the fresh produce for the Victorian government. I ran the produce monitoring program for about 12 years, testing fruit and vegetables for different chemical residues. Um, from the markets, from supermarkets, from farmers markets, and running that across the state and then working with the team in the chemical standards branch to do tracebacks when there were residue violations detected. And it was enjoyable work and also having a young family, but I, I felt a calling for something else, which turned out to be politics. And um, Julie Gillard has a saying, she says, if you want to make a change in the world, there's no better place to pursue your passion than through politics. And at the time, which would have been 2006, I was unhappy with some of the planning decisions my local council was making. I felt, felt they were carving up agricultural land. And the soil here is deep, rich volcanic soil that's you know hundreds of thousands of years old. And the saying goes, you stick a nail in the soil and you grow crowbars. So just imagine that. Yet it's all been carved up. It was running 20 minutes from Pakenham, Bobo Shires, and that's the towns of Warrigal and Druin. And I felt something needed to be done to protect our precious farming land, particularly so close to Melbourne. And at the time, the council was run all by men and the executives, the CEO were men and every, every one of the nine councillors was a bloke. And I didn't think that this was fair and adequate representation. So as it happened, there was a by-election. I put my hat in the at the ring and I got elected. So that was me and eight male councillors. So I was able to work um, effectively, but not so effectively because in politics, you've got to have the numbers. And there were many state conservative fellow male councillors who were developers, real estate agents. And I worked very hard to encourage more people to run for council. And the next election, I got re-elected in end of 2008 and we had some more young people, more women, and I got elected mayor as well. And then, uh, yeah, in February, the Black Saturday bushfires hit and it was it was extremely challenging time for many Victorians. Um, and in our area, the fires swept through and we were very lucky no one died. We had significant warnings, so people were able to get out of some of the really high-risk areas, but many farm properties were damaged, fences, farm buildings, houses were lost, and there was a lot of trauma in the community. Um, and being mayor at the time, I was also actually in the fire zone. The fire swept around our house, and Paul and I and the kids, we stayed and defended. We had a very defendable house. Um, I'm involved in the local CFA, so we were able to defend the house. Some of our neighbours weren't so lucky. They'd left and their houses were destroyed. Um, I guess why I'm mentioning this is because then when it came time for me 
to advocate for my community that had been affected. I actually knew what people were going through in terms of the trauma of a disaster like that and then the recovery. So I was able to advocate on our community's behalf from that lived experience about what was needed in the recovery period, particularly for areas like Labatouche, Longwari, and Jindavik and Drum West. Those were, those were the four main areas, if anyone knows where they are. And do you feel as though local council is a place where you can um, create create good local change? A lot of people see it often as sort of rates rubbish and uh, what's the other? roads rates rubbish and roads. Um, but yeah, why do you, why do you think it's important that people run for local government? Good people run for local government. All right. Well, thanks for asking that question because. This goes right back to the ancient Greeks and there was a Greek philosopher called Pericles and he said, you may not take an interest in politics, but politics will take an interest in you. And the moment we cede decision-making to people we don't agree with, we either stop complaining about the decisions they make or you jump in there and you have a crack at making those decisions yourself. And it increasingly frustrates me when I hear people saying they should be doing this, why aren't they doing that? And I say, hey, cross out that T, the hey, what are you doing about it? What are you doing? Because if you're not doing anything to change it, you forfeit, for, for, you for, what's the word? You forfeit your right to complain. That's my mantra. So get in there and... Literally, the moment you step out of your door onto a local road, you are stepping onto an asset that is managed by council. And there is so much scope to make the changes around what you want to see happen at a local council level. So remember that old saying, you know, think locally, think globally, act locally. Well, local politics is where it's at. And I'm constantly inspired by some of the work that councillors and mayors are doing throughout Australia. They're not waiting for Victorian government's zero net emissions target of uh, by 2050. They're going, no, we want that for our council right now. And people do often say, well, council's just roads, rates and rubbish. And I'd say, well, actually, roads is infrastructure. So it's actually how you manage your infrastructure. Rates is finance. How do you manage the money that you have the responsibility for making the decisions for the best of your community. And rubbish, well, who doesn't like rubbish? Because that sustainable waste management is at the core of how we change behaviours around people. So if we keep saying roads, rates and rubbish, we make it sound boring. But if we talk about financial, responsible financial decision-making of ratepayers' funds, if we talk about changing social behaviour to make things more sustainable. And if we talk about better asset management to um, make, make them more environmentally sustainable, suddenly you've got a lot more people interested in running for local council. So I encourage people to think about, yeah, great to be thinking globally about climate change and what, you know, federal politicians or state politicians should be doing but also think about what local politicians can do and run, run for council. And if you can't, support someone to do so who aligns with your ideals and values 
particularly about climate change. So you've actually written a book um, about running for office called Get Elected. Why did you decide to write it? And what sort of experience did you draw from when you were writing it? Well, interestingly, being a scientist, I like, I like processes and step-by-step approach, you know, whether it's a scientific prac with a method and a hypothesis and a conclusion. Uh, that's how I think. And then in 2013, my sister Kathy McGowan worked with the support of a community group there called Voices for Indi, and she nominated as an independent for the seat, federal seat of Indi. And I came on board to her campaign team. I think I was one of the few that actually had real life experience of being a candidate. So I was able to bring in some insight on how to do that to Kathy's campaign. And again, in 2016, when she ran for the second time and got really. So that was my own two campaigns and then working with Kathy to get successfully re-elected at Federal. And I also trained as a coach and a mentor and I worked with candidates that were running for local and state campaigns in, you know, 2014 and 2015. Then in 2017, I had the um, enormous privilege of being selected to do a program at the University of Melbourne called Pathways to Politics. And that program was designed for women that were interested in public office. And it was based on an American program called um, From Harvard Square to the Oval. And it's a collaboration between um, Carol Schwartz and the Women's Leadership Institute and the University of Melbourne. So they had hundreds of applicants and they selected 25 people and I did that course over the year. And um, we had amazing speakers coming in and talking about how to plan and run a campaign and bipartisan, whether you were from a major party or There was some fantastic information that was um, taught to the participants there. And at the end of that year, I thought, I would love to be able to put this stuff in a book. And I, I researched the books on how to run for office in Australia, and there was actually no guidebook on how to do that at the different levels. And there's some good resources from the UK and America, but of course their systems are different to ours. So I was actually challenged by Kathy, you know, why don't you put this in a book? And so in 2018, I, I wrote Get It and uh, then got that published just in time for the federal election. So Kathy launched it in Parliament House her term in April 2019 and we launched it there and the first edition sold out fairly quickly so it was called Get Elected, a step-by-step campaign guide to running for public office at local, state or federal in Australia Um, and then I updated it following the federal election that was May in 2019 because a, a lot of changes happened there in terms of things like early voting so often known as pre poll can now be up to 50% of, of the votes before an election are taken at pre-poll. So I did a special chapter on that, updated the Dirty Tricks chapter, but basically it runs through, you know, thinking about why would you run for office and being very clear on your purpose, which is essential because it can get pretty rugged in politics. If you can stay aligned to your goals or why you're there and what gets you out of bed every day that will keep you steady when the going gets tough a bit like a ballast in your boat 
So that's the first part. And then, then the processes you need to put in place, whether that's building the team, I have job descriptions of team members, um, risk management, compliance, how to do a budget, and then talking about, well, actually out on the campaign trail, what's it like to run? How do you look after yourself? How do you plan the communications and the messaging? How do you do the door knocking? Uh, how do you manage those early voting centres right up to election day, talking about that and then beyond? What happens if you get elected and what happens if you don't? So because one in three people who run for office are unlikely to get elected first, first time. Um, but that said, there's over 7,000 opportunities in Australia to run for public office, whether that's at local, state or federal. And that's why I come back to local council because people often think politics question time in parliament and it's only a drop in the ocean in terms of where there are opportunities to make a difference, particularly in your local community. So a lot of our farmers are really passionate and want to make a difference in their local community. Um, if any of them were thinking of running for local government or, or even state, let's leave federal out of it, what would, what would you recommend they, they think about and consider before doing it? Uh, I would, first of all, I'd ask them to start with themselves. Like, if not you, who? And if not now, when? So if you find your own language constantly complaining about why aren't they doing more about climate change, then it's that old saying, you know, every time you point at someone else, have a look at, point back at yourself. You know, what are you doing about it? And even if you don't actually want to be a councillor or a mayor, it can be really useful to get on someone else's campaign and help be an agitator. You know, be, be shit stirrer, raise the issues locally. But listen to your own language first. Um, it's quite frustrating to me when I hear people complaining about what are they doing, why aren't they doing that? Because I say, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? You may not take an interest in politics, but politics will take an interest in you. Back to that Greek philosopher, Pericles. So we actually, we actually all need to do something about it rather than complaining. And I reckon local government is a place where you can make a huge impact it's not such a big demand on your time. It's not like you have to fly to Canberra for six months of the year. Um, you can do it locally. And farmers are perfectly placed to be councillors because even nowadays, if you're in Victoria, all council meetings are online. You can do it from the comfort of your house. You don't have to go out. Um, but uh, there are Victorian elections coming up. So uh, if someone's interested in local government in Victoria, I'd say give it a crack. You've got less than three months to the elections, but it's probably, yeah, eight weeks away till the ballot papers go out. It's all postal voting. Ballot papers go out 6th, 7th and 8th of October. Nominations open on the 17th of September. So if you're in Victoria, you can get online. Local, your local council are running information sessions because now it's compulsory for candidates to do online training. Find out, nominate, pay you 250 bucks, work out the messages you want to say and stand up. And yeah, if not this time, then in four years time, there's another shot in Victoria. So that said, if you live in New South Wales, local government elections are coming up 
most likely in September 2021. So that's, you know, uh, 13 months away to, to start thinking about your campaign, which is great. Northern Territory, if anyone's listening from there, they have elections coming up later this month. And let's look at the state and territory. So ACT has elections coming up this year in October, and so does Queensland. So it's almost like peak election season at the moment. There's plenty of opportunities to either nominate and agitate. You know, you might not want to run to win, but you want to, You might go, well, I'm going to run and raise the issues that really concern me. And it might be a decision that your local jurisdiction has made that you don't agree with. So being a candidate is a great platform to agitate. Um, and like, yeah, it's peak election season at the moment. So think about, do I, do I nominate myself or do I get on a team and support someone who I agree with? Just stop complaining, for goodness sake. I'm not saying everyone is. Uh, if you hear someone complaining, say, hey, let's do something about that. Let's get a ticket together and let's have a crack. <laughs> Local councils can make such a difference. And I know recently you had a few mayors on and we can be inspired by what they're doing, whether it's waste recycling, um, you know, it might be small things like giving rebates to businesses that put on solar panels um, and, and switching all the council assets over to zero waste emissions and managing that. But you can actually do a lot with the council assets and also leading by example and using some of the instruments, financial instruments and tools that are available to incentivise actions that support, um, you know, ad adaption or uh, mitigation for climate change. You mentioned, Ruth, when you first went into local government that there were not many, or you were the only female councillor in your mm. area. Has that situation shifted since then, or how much has it shifted? It has shifted, but there, we have a long way to go. And, um, I believe that merit is equally distributed amongst the sexes. So therefore, people say, well, people should be elected on merit. And I go, well, yeah, so why aren't 50% of the councillors or politicians women? Because women are just as experienced, just as skilled. And in some cases, more. I mean, you just have to look at the international leadership with um, the leaders of countries dealing with COVID at the moment, there is some evidence to suggest that the women leaders like Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel are doing a more effective job than some of the male leaders, though it is a small population that we're drawing from there. Um, so back when I first ran, I think it was about 25% of councillors were women. Now in Victoria, it's 38. Similarly, New South Wales has only got about 30% of the councillors are women. Um, some other states are just around 40%. So that's at the local government level. ACT has um, gender parity on female representation. So does the Senate. Um, and Tasmania also the, has female, equal female representation. So we have come quite a way in the last few years, but we're still way underrepresented with females, young people, people from culturally linguistic diverse backgrounds, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, uh, people that have got disabilities. And the problem with that is that we don't get to hear those voices. 
you get to hear the, the typical politician in Australia is an older white male from a professional background. And, you know, I'm not saying we don't need some of them as politicians, we do, but they're about 70% of the politicians when they represent about 10% of the population. So you can, if it's top heavy with older white men, then you can get decisions that don't get to hear the voices of young people, women, child, people that have caring responsibilities. And, and let me give you an example. Anyone that's had to either push a pram around footpaths of their local town or, you know, sadly has had to go in a wheelchair and try and manoeuvre through footpaths or even bicycles because they're using, they're not using cars, can understand, well, where are the people that made this decision that don't have, you know, wheelchair accessible footpaths? Get the councillors in a wheelchair for a day and they'll change their views pretty quickly. And you're one of the co-founders of Honour a Woman. Can you tell us a bit about this initiative? Yeah, so I was very privileged and honoured in 2014 to be um, uh, awarded an Order of Australia medal, which is an OAM. And the Australian Honours are given out twice a year on Australia Day and Queen's Birthday to Australian citizens that have done exceptional service, either in their profession or their community. And every year there's probably about 700 OAMs given out, Order of Australia medals, and the other, the other levels are AOs, AMs and ACs. And when I, I got this award for services to um, a support group for families that were affected by disabilities and also uh, my time helping my community as mayor through the recovery of Black Saturday and other volunteer things I've been involved in. And when I had the great honour of going to Government House which is called the investiture in getting the gong, if you, if you like. I looked around the room and again, it was mostly older white men. And I come back to my point where I think there are many people in Australian society that are contributing to making our world a better place, whether it's the communities or outstanding contributions in their profession. And I think merit should be equally distributed amongst the sexes. But looking around that room at Government House, I, I didn't see many women. I certainly didn't see many young people there. I didn't see many people of colour. And a couple of years later, I, I came across um, a woman who'd written a letter to the paper, to The Age, saying, I want someone to come and help me uh, I want to start a action, an activist group changing the Order of Australia medals and making them more fairer and representative. So I wrote to her, her name was Elizabeth and another woman, Carol, and the three of us co-founded Honour a Woman. So that's Elizabeth Hartnell Young and Carol Kiernan in 2017. And at that stage, about 30% of the Australian honours were going to women. And we're in our fourth year now. We had a goal of 50-50 by 2020. And about 41, 42% of the honours are now going to women. So we've still got a little way to go, um, but we're working hard to, we're working with states and territories so they can put systems in place that not only encourage the community to nominate a woman, because anyone can go online to the Governor General's website and nominate someone, but we're also working with states and territories so they've got proactive systems where they can go out and 
find women that are doing exceptional service and nominate them. Because the tricky thing is this has to be done confidentially. So if you're being nominated, you can't know that, or if you're nominating someone, you can't let that woman know that you're nominating her. So I, people often say, well, how do I find out the information? I say, well, talk to her partner, talk to her kids, talk to her sisters, and you've got to do it behind her back so she doesn't know and put the nomination up. It's like writing a mini essay, but you can do it in a couple of days. You get a couple of referees and you submit it online and bang, you can do it any day of the year. Has it been successful, Ruth? Well, we've been successful. We've been able to get some systems going in Victoria. So Victoria now has a full-time public servant who works to with different community groups to help support them to put nominations up. So Victoria is 49.8% um, of people who get an award in Victoria Women, um, which was fantastic. And also we're changing the mindset, I think. This is, again, you can sit back and complain and you can wait for the government, whoever they are, to do something. We can get up your ass and do something. So the three of us did that. We've set up a web page called honourablewoman.com. We have a Facebook group where we support people with information. We've got about 60 ambassadors that work around the country, men and women, helping promote the work we do and encouraging Australians to nominate, a women, to nominate more women. So, yeah, we are being successful bit by bit. But you can't take progress, whether it's gender equality or progress on environmental um, issues, you can't take it for granted. Now, this stuff isn't going to just fall in your lap. It's not as though the fair and just thing happened naturally or we'd all be living in utopia. And I think many people probably listening to this are not in their head in agreement. You know, you've got to keep fighting for what's fair and what's just. And you can't give up. You mentioned that the OAM was in part due to your work in the disability sector. Are you able to tell us any more about that? Um, well, I had a family member that was diagnosed with a really rare uh, neurological condition. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of support around for families and it had the potential to be quite serious, that condition. And I there was a small group in Melbourne and I joined them and then I worked with them to take this group national and have representatives from every state and territory. And also um, it's, it's a very rare neurological condition called leukodystrophy. And not much was known about it among the medical profession in Australia. I think it's like two paragraphs in the 2000 page pediatric manuals that doctors study. So I worked to raise funds to have the first Australian Australasian international conference on leukodystrophies in 2000 and 2001, and we were able to get um, experts from Europe and from America to come over and meet with the doctors here in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and do one-on-ones with them talking about these conditions and what can be done to support the families. So it, it, it was a, a rewarding, rewarding volunteer role and I did that for 10 years and was able to work and support the families and also make sure that there was information and resources coming to Australian doctors and now there's a lot more known about and of course that was the early days of the internet when it was a lot harder to uh, tap into international research and now a lot of these conferences can be done online. Thank you for listening to our interview today. Don't forget to subscribe to Over the Fence and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
If you're interested in finding out more or getting involved with Farmers for Climate Action, you can visit our website at farmersforclimateaction.org.au. Otherwise, connect with us over social media. Catch you next time.